start with uh, our visualization and the recitations, and then we'll go into our motivation and the teachings. And Shanti Deva is going to whop us again. <laughs> if you've read ahead, you can see there's a couple of verses there that we will try and wiggle out of, and he will not let us. So let's cultivate our motivation. So our lives in samsara are very tenuous. They can end very quickly. And at that time, when they end, we are not quite sure where we will, where we will be reborn. And if we'll have the opportunity to practice the Dharma in our next life. So since that is uh, unknown to us, yet we have the opportunity now to listen, contemplate, and meditate on the teachings, then let's use that opportunity before we lose it because at some point we will lose it for sure. And the best way to use the opportunities we have is, as His Holiness is always instructing us, to develop wisdom especially the wisdom, knowing the ultimate nature, and to cultivate bodhicitta. So let's spend a moment doing that. So I'm going to start today uh, with a question that somebody sent in. And uh, this, the question revolves around what does it mean to have a precious human life? And does somebody having a precious human life make them their life more precious than others in the way that they should maybe, you know, in times of crisis be treated in a different way or when they're alive be regarded in a different way. Okay, so what is the meaning of precious? 
okay? Um, and this person is saying, I remember being taught about uh, basic goodness or the equality of all people, okay? And that comes up in the Dharma a lot. There's basic goodness. Everybody is equal in having the Buddha nature. So why do some people have precious human lives and others don't? Okay. So the misunderstanding here, I think, is about the word precious because we think of uh, precious as more valuable than others, yeah, which is what it means in a Buddhist sense, too. But here it is uh, when we say something is more precious, does that mean one person's life is more precious than another person's life? So that person should be treated differently. Yeah. Or does it mean precious in the sense that that person has the opportunity to practice the Dharma, which other people may not have in this particular life? Okay. And so here, you know, when I talk about precious human life, it's this, it's the second meaning. Okay. So, cause there's a whole topic in, um, the Buddhist scriptures called precious human life. And what that means is it's a special kind of human life that whereby that person has eight particular freedoms and 10 uh, particular fortunes that make their life really valuable for practicing the Dharma and progressing on the path. It does not make those people better than everybody else. It just means they have that opportunity. Whether they use that opportunity or not is their own business, okay? And uh, that's why the teachers always encourage us to recognize we have a precious human life and to use that opportunity and not waste it, okay? But the precious doesn't mean that those people are better than others that um, or anything like that, okay? Is, is that clear? Um, so because when you think about it, okay, uh, to have a precious human life, it's something people who practice Buddhism want. Other people don't care about it. So the fact that they don't have it, uh, you know, they are not fretting. They are not feeling uh, oppressed or left out or disregarded or unimportant, okay? Uh, because it's only if you want to practice the spiritual path that having the opportunities of what Buddhists call a precious human life, it's only in that context that uh, that the eight freedoms and, and ten fortunes matter. Okay. If you aren't interested in spiritual practice, then, you know, what Buddhists call a precious human life, it's like, you know, People who go fishing may say, I have a precious human life because I live near the ocean where there's a lot of fish and I can make a really good living going fishing all the time. So I, my life is very precious because I can really succeed in my career. So people may have, have that feeling of being precious. Buddhists wouldn't care about, you know, 
feeling precious because you live near the ocean and have good fishing equipment and a lot of fish out there. You don't care, you know, because that's not what you want. Uh, so similarly, you know, people who aren't, um, you know, interested in in uh, Buddhist practice don't really care if they have one or not. Okay? It would be nice if they cared, but, uh, you know, I can't imagine going to my parents and saying, uh, you know, you should really try and get all the conditions so you have a precious human life. You know, I not going to tell you what I think they would respond. Um, yeah. So, okay. So it's um, not saying that some people are better than other people or somebody people's life is more worthwhile or some people deserve more perks because, you know, we do live in a society where every life is precious. Isn't it? You know, it isn't that, oh, well, some people's life is not so precious, so it's okay if they die. It doesn't really matter if they don't have good health care or if they live in a war zone or if there's a stray bullet that hits a kid. They didn't have a precious human life, so it doesn't matter. No, we're not talking like that. Every human life, from the point of being a living being, is precious and to be respected. And in, and it's not even human lives. Every animal life is precious. Even the mosquitoes, okay? Even our friends, the swarms of stink bugs, whose official title is conifer seed bug. Yeah, conifer seed bug. So we're, I don't know if they think we're slandering them by calling them stink bugs. Um or not, uh, you know, if, if they have a protest, maybe that's what's going on at my cabin, why they're all amassing there, protesting that I call them stink bugs instead of conifer seed bugs. But in any case, you know, all life is valuable. That's why we have the first precept, you know, not to take life. That's why we have the second precept, not to... Steal, you know, because if you steal people's things, it makes it can make it more difficult for them to stay alive. Okay, so all lives are valuable in this way. Okay, so I hope that uh, you know <laughs> clears up the confusion here. Um, yeah. So he, he concludes in saying, recently there are myriad pressing social issues and unrest in the south and west sides of Chicago, nearby and in the U.S. and in the world. And I feel that in a sacred way, inequality is a precarious position for Buddhism to take. I completely agree. Yeah, when regarding all life and all sentient beings wanting to be happy and not suffer, you know, we do not talk about inequality and special people, you know, have deserving more or less or whatever. Okay? Yeah, clear? Clear? Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, back to the text. 
Yeah. So let's start with 82, a little bit of review here. The objects of desire will certainly perish, and then I shall fall into hellish states. However, Buddhahood itself is attained with just one millionth of the difficulty. Okay? So, you know, if we don't uh, seem to care about uh, if we fall into the lower realms, you know, we're, we're kind of complacent about it, or we have some kind of idea of, well, I'll just, uh, you know, when I'm born in the lower realms, I'll practice taking and giving meditation. It won't be so bad. Something like that, you know? Um, yeah. Or if we do, or if we are afraid of being born in the hell, in the hellish realms, then we're we're quite square, scared because we realize that we could really uh, be exposed to a great deal of suffering. Okay, but when it comes to practicing the Dharma, we don't we want only to be comfortable. We don't want anything that's a little bit inconvenient, even if it's not painful. It's just inconvenient, you know. A teaching is happening at a time that is not convenient for me. Or, uh, you know, I'm asked to do a practice that I don't feel like. Or uh, I'm asked to set up for the teachings, but, you know, again, my little toe is, is throwing a temper tantrum and I can't, you know, why do I have to do that? So we don't want those sufferings that we encounter in our life. But um, but if we undergo even a teeny bit of suffering in this life for the sake of the Dharma, it's, you know, we shouldn't see it as a big deal. Yeah. Why? Because even, um, you know, go, if we undergo that little bit of suffering, we will create merit. We will be. We will avoid uh, creating non-virtue. We will, you know, be practicing the path and getting closer to Buddhahood, even as if it's just conquering, you know, the incredible suffering of getting up when the alarm clock rings. You know, I mean, that's just like so much suffering. Who wants to do that? You know, let me think of some excuse why I can think sleep later. I'm not talking about you. You need to sleep. Okay. <laughs> You're waking up when there's not an alarm clock. Yeah. So, okay. But, you know, the, the small things we don't want to undergo the smallest suffering for. But, they, you know, we reap some benefit for doing. Yeah. And... uh yeah, and yet um, we aren't willing to do that for the sake of Buddhahood. Yeah, uh, even though you know getting to Buddhahood has an end. You know, creating the causes for Buddhahood has an end, whereas creating the causes to um, to get what we want because our mind with desire is you know, grabbing at everything at once, that doesn't have an end, and that will bring much more suffering. 
to us, you know, in terms of our rebirth. But we're, you know, we we don't seem to mind the suffering of the lower realms, but the suffering of a, that is entailed, you know, a little bit of suffering and doing Dharma practice, we don't want. But, yeah, when it says, however, Buddhahood is attained with just one millionth of the difficulty. Yeah, if when we follow desire, we're, you know, it's really difficult to be happy. Yeah, first of all, we're creating the cause for rebirth in the lower realm. But second of all, even in this life, when we desire this and we desire that, you have to work really hard to get your samsaric desires fulfilled, don't you? Yeah. I mean, we just went through this whole thing of what you have to go through to get a spouse. And, you know, and if you want, uh, you know, what you want your red sports car when, when you hit middle age, I mean, what do you have to do in all the, preceding decades to make sure that you can afford your uh, candy apple red sports car when you hit 45. And you have to work really hard. And a job and get up early to go to work and get your degree so you have a degree to get the job and then you have to compete with everybody. And then your colleagues, you know, get time off when you don't get time off. And, you know, and you have a family, and so you have to support your family, and you come home from work, and you're really tired, but the kids want to play with you, and they're jumping all over you, and all you want to do is crash in front of the television and go, I'm exhausted. I mean, it's hard. You know, in samsara, getting what you want is hard. Uh, if you want a good reputation, you have to do a lot to get a good reputation. And sometimes even you do all of that, you still don't get a good reputation. Okay. Plus, you know, you wind up with this negative karma. Whereas if we put the same amount of energy into practicing dharma, you know, one millionth of the energy, then we would really get somewhere. Okay. Yeah. I remember when I went to Tibet in 1986, um, we were going in a bus up to Gandan Monastery, which is outside of Lhasa on the top of a hill. And the bus was like, uh, uh, you know, like barely moving because it was, you know, a lot of switchback road getting up there. And I started thinking about the young um, young soldiers in the people, you know, Chinese People's Army, who got up to Gandan Monastery and then destroyed it, you know, when they occupied Tibet, and especially during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, and I thought, wow, they went through. You know, I was sitting in this bus going. You know, <laughs> this is very uncomfortable. And I thought of these soldiers and what they, the energy that they had to exert to get to the top of the hill, and then the energy they had to exert to destroy these buildings that were made of stone 
you know, I don't think that they had explosive devices or whatever. I'm not sure, but, you know, China was pretty poor then. And I thought of what they did to destroy the Dharma. And if I put out just, again, a millionth of the effort to practice the Dharma, then my life would be really, really different. So it really struck me how we're willing, you know, well, the, the guys in the army didn't have a choice. Yeah, their generals told them to do that. But they did have a choice to enlist. And a lot of them enlisted because they came from poor families. And it was the one way to get some income for your family. And then they went through all this thing to destroy the Dharma physical exertion, this life creating a horrendous karma for future lives. Yeah. And they were willing to do that, to put out all that energy. And I thought, you know, practicing the Dharma doesn't take very much energy compared to that. Okay. So I think this is the kind of the point that, that Shanti Deva's getting across. And so the hidden message, in case it isn't obvious, is um, use your energy for something beneficial and good. And, uh, uh, you know, don't waste it on complaining about things. Uh, you know, just do what you need to do to practice the Dharma. So when you, ha when you leave this life, you have something virtuous to take with you. Yeah. Because all the objects of desire, you can't take with you. Yeah, what we take with us is our karma, or the seeds of our karma. And so we want to make sure that we collect virtuous karma. Okay. So 83, involved in continually exhausting myself for the sake of what is not very great. Hence the desirous experience greater misery than those following the awakening way of life. But for them, there is no awakening. Okay? So, you know, involved in continually exhausting myself for the sake of what is not very great. That saying, I'm one of these persons who, who are desirous that Shantideva is talking about. And I continually exhaust myself trying to get material possessions and wealth and praise and reputation and avoid, you know, people looking down on me and not approving of me and criticizing me. And, you know, I want my red sports car and I want my, my trip to Bali. Uh, or the Bahamas, and I want this, and I want that, and the other thing. So I, ex you know, I exhaust myself. And, and I, you know, Shantideva is saying, um, for the sake of what is not very great. So what is it that's not very great? The eight worldly concerns. You know, getting the four pairs and avoiding the other, the, um, getting, yeah, getting the, the four not pairs, getting the four things we're attached to and avoiding the uh, four things 
that we have aversion for, that's not very great when you have a big view of the universe that takes into consideration uh, past and future lives and takes into consideration karma. Yeah. Because if that's part of your worldview, then, you know, you can see like how people just exhaust themselves for what purpose? Yeah. Just to get stuff that they're not even sure they'll get. And even if they get, sometimes it isn't as good as they thought it was going to be. And even if it's as good as they thought it was going to be, they're going to have to separate from it when they die. So that is, those things are not so great. But I and other people, we exhaust ourselves, you know, wanting to do that. So this this is the mind that, uh, you know, comes into any situation and uh, wants to control everything and wants to change the rules so they benefit me and deny everything that I did that I'm not very proud of. I want to keep it hidden and, you know, all those things that we do. Okay. So, hence, the desirous experience greater misery than those following the awakening way of life. Yeah? Because when you have that desire, you just, every lifetime is a, you know, is a repeat but with a slightly different environment. And you're born as a different person. But the mind is the same and having to exert yourself for what really isn't of great value. Um, Yeah, we do it again and again. Okay, whereas if we follow the awakening way of life, we can uh, reach the end of samsara. We can be free of, of... that kind of grasping mind, yeah. But for the people who follow desire, uh, there is no awakening. That's pretty a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, can't I have awakening and also have my samsaric desires satisfied? Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, can't I? Well, yeah, we can. It's a free world. We can do that if we want, but we should be aware of the results of following one life, the results of following the other life, and then make a good decision. Nobody's telling us we can't follow desire. Shanti Dev is just saying, if you do, this is what happens, and if you don't, that's what happens. Okay, but it's a free world. You know, Buddha's not saying you must suffer. You know, come on. Okay. So also important in this is you know, he's Shanti Dev is talking about us. And in this discussion, it's so easy to say, oh. But here are all these other people, and some of them are Dharma practitioners, but they really follow desire a lot. Yeah, but I am trying to abandon it, and, you know, I'm kind of a little bit 
better than them, maybe. Yeah, they're 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 just following desire. Uh-huh. There's there's that tendency, isn't there? Yeah, I'm better than those. Yeah, it's like well, I won't compare myself to worldly people because that's not even anything to compare. You know, it's just, I'm, I know I'm better than them. But other Dharma practitioners, yeah, they, they say, oh, desire is bad. But look at what they're doing. Yeah, but I don't do that. Yeah. I just look at the snack shelf and drool. I don't go and get anything because I'm renounced. Okay. Mm-hmm. For some clarity, I've been really thinking about the eight worldly concerns after your teaching last week. And, you know, I know when my mind's really going after them, my afflictions are usually a pretty general indicator when I'm depressed, pushy, stubborn, you know, craving. But when my mind gets to a place of kind of pleased and happy and content, it's a little bit harder to parse out when that motivation's coming from a right place and when it's not. So when the eight worldly concerns get met, it's a whole lot more difficult to really, for me mm-hmm. to track and just say, where's where's this really coming from? Where's this happiness and contentment with oneself mm-hmm. really coming from? Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of uh, ideas on how to parse out the <laughs> virtuous peace and contentment and the eight worldly concerns. I got him. Yippee. I am just so cool. Yeah. I I got what I want. This is samsara is not so bad. I can't, you know, my, my desire got satisfied. This is good. And it feels good. Yeah. So I don't have desire. I'm not, I'm not attached. It's just these things are coming to me and finally I have some happiness. Yeah. So, yeah, what's what's wrong with happiness? Yeah, Buddha told us we should be happy, you know. But Buddha wants me to start, you know, be miserable. Um, what I find is when that happens is, uh, okay, there's two things I do. One is I give it away, you know. Even if it's not a, a, a material possession, like for me, that often comes when I'm taking a walk and it's just so beautiful outside, you know, and like the leaves are starting to turn and at, you know, kind of around 435 and the way the sunlight hits the, the trees across the valley and, you know, and you walk in the forest and it's so quiet and and peaceful and then what i do is i think of um all the guys in prison you know because i you know i i do prison work and i think wow they can't even they don't even have a window that opens so they can breathe breathe fresh air yeah and i think here i am and you know the fresh air is free and and to, to me, I'm, I'm quite sensitive to the air of a place, you know, the quality of the air. And it's like, oh, the forest air is so nice. And I think, you know, of them stuck in a small cell with no fresh air and no ability to control their environment. 
you know. Similarly, you know, when you're in prison, you know, especially if the guards don't like you, they will uh, keep a light shine in in your cell 24-7 so that even if you're sleeping, there's this very bright light in your cell, okay? Uh, and I think, wow, you know, here's this beautiful environment I'm walking in and, you know, they're in a totally different environment and I enjoy the silence and I'm sure some of them would enjoy the silence. Prison is pretty noisy, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I just mentally give it to them, you know, and imagine them having that opportunity. Uh, or, so that that's one thing I do. Another thing is I uh, contemplate the impermanence of whatever it is that uh, I think is giving me happiness, you know. That, wow, you know, if, if I'm out in the nature, the sun's going to set. And, you know, this season is ending and then we're going to, you know, it'll be dark and it'll be cold. And yes, I like the snow, but sometimes, you know, it's like when you're in winter, oh, I want, I want summer. Well, yes, sometimes summer gets a bit too hot, but, you know, I want it. So, you know, this kind of mind, but, um, to, to really think of how whatever it is that I'm getting that I like is, you know, it's not going to last for long. And when it ceases, does it matter whether I had it or not? And here I think about all the things that I've desired my whole life. I mean, it's really interesting. Spend some time and go through your whole life. You know, starting when you were an infant with everything you cried about that you wanted, you know, as infants, I want my bottle, I want this, I want that. And, you know, and just your whole life, I want, I want, I want. And everything, and then you remember everything you got through the kindness of other people who gave us those things and how. None of those things are here right now with us. They all left. They all ended. And even if they were here, they wouldn't give us any pleasure right now. Okay. So I think most of us probably had a blankie when we were little. You know, this is some old blanket that, you know, looked like a rag that your parents wanted to throw out after some time because you threw up on it so much as a baby. But you wanted your blankie. And when you had your blankie and stuck your thumb in your mouth with your blankie, that was heaven. Okay? Do you remember that? Or maybe you can't remember, but, you know, I mean, this is kind of almost universal around kids, uh, you know, babies. And where's that blankie now? You know, did your parents save it so so that you can reminisce about your childhood? Or maybe you saved it? Or, you know, if somebody pulled it out right now and gave you your blankie, what would you do with it? Would it make you happy now? <laughs> no. You'd <laughs> say, what a dirty, filthy rag. Get rid of it. You wouldn't pick it up and suck your thumb again. You know, so what gave you 
incredible pleasure years ago. Now, you know, you don't want. Yeah. And then you think of all the things you wanted when you were little growing up and you got some of those things and then you didn't get other things. Yeah. But does any of that really matter now? You know, what you got, what you didn't get. How much are we holding on to the past? I went to a conference one of the uh, some years ago in Seattle. It was one of these inner child conferences, you know, when that was the latest rage talking about your inner child. And I was asked to do a some kind of breakout group. Anyway, I went to the um, plenary talk, which was given, you know, by some apparently famous guy or big wig or whatever. And and he was walking pacing the state the stage and talking about the inner his inner child and getting in touch with your inner child and how when he grew up his father always promised to take him to the baseball game, you know? And his father always said, next time we'll go. But then they never went. His father never took him to the baseball game. And, you know, he's wounded. He has this wounded inner child that feels rejected by his father because he never went to a baseball game. Yeah? Does that matter now? Well, it mattered to him you know, he was, I don't know, in his 40s or 50s or whatever, but still longing to go to a baseball game with his dad. You know, he couldn't drop it. Yeah, because there was this wounded inner child inside. But, it, you know, if you go now to a baseball game with your dad, yeah, well, then, you know, maybe it was, oh, you want to go to a baseball game now with your dad because some guy just hit the 60-second home run in one season, breaking Roger Maris's record, and you want to be there seeing him hit that out of the stadium. Yeah. And your mind is stuck on that. Yeah. Now, of course, going to a baseball game is is symbolic of something else. It's symbolic of some kind of connection with that he wanted with his dad. Yeah. But that didn't happen when he was little, because maybe his dad was working long hours to get the money so that he had some food to eat at night. Or, you know are getting, you know, his dad was working hard and having to travel for business, again, you know, to support the family. But kids forget that. What they stick on is, you know, I didn't get to go to the ball game. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, this we can just see how the mind of desire, whether you're wanting the ball game or, or wanting that closer connection with your dad, that, you know, you don't have now. And you can't go back and be a child and get. But you can be an adult and create a relationship with your dad. Even if your dad is dead, 
in your heart, you can create a loving relationship with him and appreciate what he did do. But, yeah, we often don't take that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we, you know, what we see again and again is following desire actually makes us quite miserable. We get stuck. Yeah, we're stuck in the past for for things that we didn't get. Yeah, or we're stuck in the future, wanting things that who knows if we will get or not. Yeah. When I was, I forget what age, I was really little, but my parents had a birthday party for me. And at the end of the birthday party with all my friends and a clown and this wonderful birthday where I was the center of attention and got a whole bunch of presents, then I went and I had a little corner in my room. I went and cried at the end of my birthday because it was going to be another year before I had a birthday. Okay. Now, am I still stuck in that? Now I have birthdays with people <laughs> playing recorders and carrying a parasol and singing songs and, you know, all a whole big thing that I don't want. But when I was a kid, I wanted that. <laughs> yeah? So our desire you know, it's so funny what our desire wants. It wants one thing, it one doesn't want it at another time. Yeah, when you get it, then you don't want it. It's like, oh God, can just can I just walk from here to there without a big deal? You know, no. Yeah, but then if you did do it, it's like, oh well, they're missing my birthday. <laughs> Oh, they're celebrating Venerable Sapel's birthday and not mine. Yeah. <laughs> we have the same birthday. So, different years. But you can't tell the difference, can you? <laughs> She's still a teenager. She's wearing braces, you know? <laughs> okay, 84. When one has contemplated the miseries of hell, it will be clear that there is nothing comparable to the harm caused to desirous beings, even by weapons, poison, fire, ravines, and foes. Okay, so when we think of rebirth in the hellish realms, that where we experience suffering because of the actions we did with our desirous mind, then we see that you can't even compare that to the harm that we would experience, you know, by things of this life because the hell realms are so much worse. Okay. And then he lists things that are uh, harmful in this life, weapons, poison, fire, Ravines. What's harmful about a ravine? What? Oh, you fall into it? Oh, I always think of hiking through a ravine, not falling. You fall off a cliff. 
into the oh, yeah. I'm just contemplating the falling off the cliff part, you know, and then strolling through a ravine. Yeah, you've walked through ravines before, haven't you? Yeah. Okay, and foes, but uh, you know that poison, uh, that uh, suffering in this life is nothing compared to the hell realms. 85, having in this way developed disillusionment with desire, I should generate joy for solitude. The fortunate ones stroll in peaceful forests devoid of disputes and disturbing conceptions. Okay, so what's interesting, he said, having in this way developed disillusionment with desire. He didn't say disillusionment with objects of desire. Yeah, he said with desire, the affliction itself. Okay. And I was thinking about why did he say it that way? Well, because we can have one object of desire and be disillusioned with it and another object and disillusioned with that and so on. But we haven't developed disillusionment with desire. So what we do is we just transfer our desire from one object or one person to another because we still think desire will bring us happiness. This particular relationship won't. This particular object won't. But if I find the right one, my desire will be fulfilled and I'll be happy. You know, so it, it really made me think because so often to combat desire, we think of the disadvantages of the object and how the object won't bring us satisfaction. But we need to, when we do that, not just say, well, this object won't bring me satisfaction, but my desire is impossible to satisfy. So no matter what I get, I will not be satisfied. And in that way, develop disillusionment with, with the mind of desire itself. Yeah, instead of switching it to another object. I can't get chocolate ice cream, so I will desire apple pie instead and go for that. Yeah. The, the apple pie store is closed. So I'll go for pizza. You know, so you're still following desire, just changing the object, you know. And, yeah, and I think that happens a lot in relationships. Yeah, oh, this person's wonderful. Then, uh, I'm so tired of them. Then, you know, okay, so this one didn't work out. You know, we broke up. But there's this other one that I met. You know, and then you do the whole story all over again, except with a different person. Yeah, so we have to see that, that with the desire. It's the problem of the desire. It's, there's no problem with enjoying things. The problem is with the desire that keeps craving more and better of it. You know, the more and better mind. 
Yeah, we we need a song about more and better. Yeah, sounds like a candy bar, doesn't it? More and better. Get your more and better at the. It's more in this container than you got before, and it's better than what you got before. Yeah, and it costs more too. I got a thing from United Airlines saying. You know, oh, we really respect our customers, and we want them to have the best service other, you know, that they possibly can. You know, when they get silver and gold and platinum and diamond, so we are raising the requirements for getting these higher states. How much money you have to pay in tickets to to get to the platinum or diamond things? That's helping your customers. Well, that's making them more exclusive, so they don't have other people around them more.、But、I found it rather humorous, you know. You have to pay more, and they're calling this, you know, we're doing more for our, our customers. Okay. Well, that's more and better, isn't it? Yeah, more and better, more and better. Okay. So eighty-five, having in this way developed disillusionment with desire, I should generate joy for solitude. The fortunate ones stroll in peaceful forests, devoid of disputes and disturbing conceptions. So now, we say, okay, I'm done with desire, but I just want to be alone. I can't stand these sentient beings. I can't stand all the cons. All the stuff they go through. I want to be a fortunate one, strolling in peaceful forests where nobody's bugging me. Yeah, and then you develop this thing of now. This is what I want to be. You know, I couldn't、uh, become a general in the army. I couldn't be a famous whatever I wanted to be. I couldn't get the right amount of money to impress the people. I couldn't get my sports car or my yacht. I couldn't, you know, get whatever it is. So I'm done with seeking that. But now, I want. A peaceful forest to stroll in, and you develop this image of now I am a great Dharma practitioner, and you can see yourself in this beautiful nature scene on a sunny day. You know, no bugs, no threat of fire, yeah, no wild animals, and you're just strolling through the forest. You know, as this. Incredible recluse and sincere Dharma practitioner, you know. And then all your friends back in the city are going nuts with their jobs and families, but they remember you out in the forest and think, "What a great practitioner my first grade friend is now." Okay, I, I don't think this is what Shanti Deva had in mind in this verse. But you know, knowing my own mind, how things work, you know, just okay. I don't want that object of desire anymore. So now I build an identity with another object of desire, and this time it's walking alone and being this recluse who's totally renounced 
with sincere Dharma practice, free of the hassles of the world. And I go back to my cave with its refrigerator and its central heating and my friend who brings up chocolate cake every weekend. And I meditate. And I'm experiencing bliss in my meditation. I have single-pointed concentration on, you know, who knows what. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. I'm spaced out in meditation on nothingness. It's so blissful. Yeah. And we just create another identity. Okay. So, like I said, I don't think that's what Shantideva had in mind. But knowing at least my mind and maybe your mind, that's, this is an alternative. Yeah. It's like I renounced that, but now I'm attached to this. Yeah. Like the young man who stayed here who wanted to meditate in the forest. Yeah. And just come to the kitchen every noon and collect his food and then spend the rest of the day in the forest. Until what was it that scared him back? Yeah. Yeah. Also, he had a lot of restless energy. I don't think he spent most of the day sitting in in Vajra position meditating. <laughs> okay. But yeah, what Shanti Deva is talking about is somebody who sincerely ha- is disillusioned with desire, okay, and is said, you know, I, I, I see I've ran after run I've run after all that stuff for so long. I'm done now, yeah, and so I I am content just with a simple lifestyle. Of course, you don't have to go living in a cave to have a simple lifestyle. You can you know, create a simple, at least a simpler lifestyle here. Yeah. We say, but the monastery has so much going on and I don't have any spare time because, you know, I have to do the dishes and I have, I'm on the cooking rota and then I have to set up the prayer, the water bowls and then I have to take down the water bowls and then I work for a certain team and the, this team wants me here at that time but the other team wants me there at the other time and then I you know there's the Buddha hall construction going on and then there's the abbess who whatever we do says no that's not right you got to do it differently and I came to the this place to have a quiet simple lifetime I'm going back to New York. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So what this reminds me of, there's one Zen thing, you know, uh, that you may have heard where a student uh, says, uh, uh, asks the question, you know, says the flag is, 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 you know, moving. So is it, the flag that is moving or the wind 
that is moving. Yeah. Which is it? The wind that's moving? Or is it the flag that's moving? And the master said, it's your mind that's moving. Yeah. So wherever you are, the moving mind is going to be dissatisfied. Okay, but here, Shantideva, I think, is talking about people who are who have really conquered desire and saying, you know, they can go out into, you know, in any environment, basically, and be peaceful. Yeah. If you look what His Holiness's life is like, you know, I, I think about his life sometime and it's like, and I say I'm busy. Yeah. I mean, he has many more commitments than I do. But during the morning, I mean, all on a typical day, now it's COVID, you know, COVID things have changed and his age, his age has changed things. But usually all morning, one person after the other with or group of people after the other with no break. And everybody coming in wants something from him. Yeah. Even if they came in and say, I want to help you with this, you know, it's like sometimes they, they still, they want something, praise or whatever. And then in the afternoon, yeah, he would often do group audiences or whatever. Again, a parade of people. And, he, you know, and he has to do the kata thing. And, you know, I've been watching the, his teachings lately and usually when somebody uh, offer you know the group that offers teaching teachings or that is the sponsor for teaching usually it's just a few people who stand up and and do the mandala offering and you know and a few benefactors who do that lately it's like <laughs> you know i think is is everybody in you know who's with that group they're all coming up yeah because his holiness now has a stack of of ribbons this thick you know to give to each person and do the you know the kata thing and and everything and and then you know people coming in you know his own staff with a pile of letters about things that he's got to take care of and it used to be also tibetan government things and news from Tibet and things that, you know, he's concerned about, about the Tibetans in Tibet, the Tibetans in the settlements in India. Talk about a busy life. And yet his mind is pretty serene, you know, if you see him in any of these situations. Yeah, he's not kind of, he doesn't come into an audience like, oh, okay. You, what do you want from me? <laughs> you know, he's not like that. I mean, you you see him when he's walking to, you know, are you watching that part before the teaching and after the teaching when he walks there and when he walks back? You know, I mean, it's hard. He's having a hard time walking. And yet he spends 10, 15 minutes 
walking through the crowd, smiling at people, touching the heads of old people, touching the babies, chatting with a few people here and there. And he's, and he's happy to do all of that. Yeah. And he's just trying to walk to get from here to there. But his mind is happy and joyful, you know. So it's, um, it's showing us that you can have a peaceful life in the middle of a lot going on. Okay. Maybe first you, you need some quiet time and retreat. Yeah, because your mind is not so controlled to be in, in a busy environment. Yeah. But you need to be able to take advantage of the retreat time. And, um, you know, if your mind is, you know, I'm really seeing how much merit it takes to be able to do a long retreat. Yeah. Or to, yeah, to do a retreat. It's, your mind has to be in a certain state to make, uh, you know, if you think you're going to get realizations, you know. We come upon the Dharma and, you know, enlightenment in this life. We have no background, no understanding, but... You know, my whole cohort, we were going to get enlightened in that very lifetime. And we were in Nepal where there's plenty of caves. Yeah. And then, but we didn't realize that it's not a question of just going doing and doing retreat as soon as you can. It's creating the causes so that when you do retreat, something good can come out of it. Okay, 86. They live in joyful houses of vast flat stones. That sounds really joyful, huh? Flat stones. Flat stones are hard. Yeah. If you have a slate roof on top of your mud brick hut, it makes a lot of noise during monsoon, you know, the water falling on the slate roof, and you're inside on a dirt floor with a few leaks. I mean, we think we have leaks here. Um, yeah. Anyway, they live in joyful houses of vast flat stones, cooled by the sandal-scented moonlight, fanned by the peaceful, silent forest breeze. Yeah. So, you know, we're still in our, you know, image of ourself as the great meditator, you know, thinking of chocolate, <laughs> you know. And, and so the last line here is what what is the difference between that external situation when you're thinking with chocolate and what Shantideva is talking about? You're in that situation, sitting on your flat stones, yeah, with your calluses on your tush, like Milarepa had. Okay, and what are you doing? Thinking of what is benefit for others. Not thinking about, you know, how grand I'm going to be when I have realizations and how much people admire me for renouncing and going to the forest. You know, we're thinking about what is of benefit to others and how can I engage in 
providing benefit to others. Yeah. When you brought up the thing of having a, a, a happy mind, when we have a happy mind, do we think of benefiting others? Sometimes there's space in our mind to think of benefiting others when we have a happy mind. Sometimes we are so engaged, enthralled with our happiness that we don't think of benefiting others. Yeah. But here he's talking about a sincere practitioner, and that's what what they're thinking about. So I think that practitioner is there strolling through the forest, is thinking about um, the suffering of the animal realm, you know, all the animals in the forest that they, you know, were born in those kind of bodies and have a difficult time getting out of them. Scientists recently, big scientific discovery, because they were, you know, trying to imagine how many ants there are in the world. Yeah, this question came up. I don't know who, how many ants there are in the world. But somebody figured out, if you put all those ants together, they would weigh more than all the uh, mammals on earth. That is a profound discovery. Worthy of press in the New York Times. Yeah. But that's totally different than, I mean, if you're a practitioner walking through and thinking about the plight of these ants, you know, and how, I mean, if you're an ant, how do you create virtue? Yeah. Well, ants do take care of each other, yeah. But when they have to fight an opposing anthill, they do. Yeah. And even though we may give some Dharma instructions to the ants when we walk past the anthill, uh, there's no comprehension. Yeah. So when you really think of it, and then and then you think these beings were my parents, and you think of the fondness and appreciation you have for your present parents, and then you think, you know, in a past life, that's how I felt towards these ants, you know, and look at their state of being now, and my present parents, what's going to happen to them, and then. How can I, ha- you know, help my present parents? You know, sometimes that's difficult, isn't it? You know, my parents weren't interested. But, you know, dad did come here for a few days. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. So I hope I helped him that way. You know, he came here. What? Yes, he did. Yeah, through the kindness of Tenzin Kacha. Yeah. And he really responded to his holiness. 
I mean, they took a picture. I mean, he was just with His Holiness. I don't know, 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds at the most. And he had tears in his eyes. My dad, <laughs> you know? Well, His Holiness really affected him. So, yeah. Okay. So where are we? Um, thinking of what is of benefit for others. Okay, we have a little bit of time for comments and questions. Um, just a comment, Venerable. I've been thinking how, how ignorance, our self-grasping ignorance, we take it as wisdom when we are in the world and we take it as we are like very successful people because we're having this and that and that. And before the Dharma, before your teachers, it just never occurred to me that all these things were going to bring suffering in next lives. I mean, the value of these teachings is enormous for the for how we should steer our mind again into the right direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the confusion, all the it's just heartbreaking, really. Yeah. Yep. Well said. It is heartbreaking. And when you look out at the world now and see, you know, I mean, first you see yourself and that heartbreaking. And then you see, it's like we're living in a nut house, you know, where, where what's going on around us is totally crazy. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It's like after the, the I met the Dharma, I could never go back to my life as it was before. Never, ever. Mm -hmm. It's it just doesn't make sense anymore. I just don't have the the will or the energy to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're fortunate that you have an alternative. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. So you can see how your mind is growing in the Dharma, that you're understanding these kinds of things that before you, even though you heard many Dharma teachings, it never really went in and you didn't understand it well before. But now, now your understanding is really growing. And the other thing that makes it even more tragic is that even when I look at the world, even the folks who are more than, you know, are so set into the eight worldly concerns, the confusion on what to create and what to cultivate to even get the happiness of this life has gone off the deep end. Yeah. So it's not even like if everybody really wanted to have the happiness of the, just this life and knew that there was a causality about it, there would be a different kind of program going on. But at this point, there's no 
even the happiness of this life isn't being acquired by a huge portion of the world right now. Yeah. It's like, what happened? Even, even the eight worldly concerns don't muster up an effort of good neighborliness and showing up for people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so odd. I'm, that's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but there you see another disadvantage of desire because, uh, when the mind is filled with desire and anger, there's no space in the mind to think of friendliness or neighborliness or looking out for each other as members of a common community. Yeah, there's only I want and I don't want. And the mind gets, you know, I mean, they say that this is a, de a degenerate age for a reason. Yeah. But you also see that, you know, so many people work very hard for the happiness of this life and they don't get it. Yeah. They, they were saying that, you know, after the Hurricane Ian, the, I mean, incredible devastation in Florida, who's going in to help do the repairs? The migrant workers the ones that the governor of Florida doesn't want in his state. But they're the people that are coming in to help. Yeah. So we can see that, you know, yeah, there's just an enormous amount of confusion and how hard people are trying to be happy and then doing the opposite thing, you know, creating the cause for suffering. Okay. Let's dedicate.